Amen. Please be seated. Well, God continues to lead us from his word. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water, because they do not keep your law. Well, brothers and sisters, we're turning now to the, the preaching of the Word of God. And so um, I ask you a question as we go to this just to help us, you know, kind of think about it. Um, question 89 uh, from the Shorter Catechism uh, asks this. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? Okay, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? Those of you that are answering it in your, in your minds, I'll just um, recite it for you. The answer is this. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God. An effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. So it's a dense answer, but what I'm wanting you to think about and leave you with, and what I'm wanting to hear as well is, Lord, um, I understand this morning that your spirit is here right now, and that your spirit is going to use a word that Greg is going to preach, and that word needs to convince me of who you are, convince me that I am a sinner, that I stand in need of your grace, all right? Um, That word is going to build me up, it's going to build you up, in holiness, which means the, the life that we've been called to in Christ, God uses this, this thing that occurs week by week to make you holy, to make you desire Christ, to make you call Christ beautiful, to shift your, your gaze from what is beautiful or what you have considered beautiful in the past to, to him, to Christ. Um, and the, the last thing it's going to do is it's going to comfort you. And I, I know we're all here, um, you know, showered, well-dressed, you know, smiles on our faces, but um, the world is a traumatic place uh, for us to live in. There is disruption, discord all around us, in our lives, outside of our lives, in our families, in our culture. Brothers and sisters, we need comfort, but we don't need comfort that the world would give. We need the comfort from God's word, and so that's, that's what I'm wanting you to at least think about and, and recognize um, that this means of grace that God's given to us has been given to us to accomplish um, at least those things and, and many more. So let's attend to the word of God. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. 
chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. And as well in your notes, uh, locate or in your bulletin, locate the sermon notes and Please use that to take notes and follow along and hopefully get a better grasp on Zechariah chapter 6. This is the last vision in this section of Zechariah. So Zechariah has three main sections, a vision section, and then 7 through 8, his sermons. And then um, 9 through the end of the, of the book are um, apocalyptic. And so we're at the, the very last vision of this book, and uh, vision number 8. And uh, wonderful vision that it is. Let me invite you to stand together with me as I read this God's word. Hear now the reading of the word of, of the Lord. Now I lifted up my eyes and again and looked. And behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, strong, dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and you, go, and, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. And take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he, will bear, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off will, will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for this incredible vision that you gave to your people living in such a difficult time. And Lord, you give to us. You intend for your people throughout this age. Lord, bless this time of studying your word. Grow us open our eyes, illuminate our hearts that we might understand your word and understanding, O oh Lord, that we might grow indeed mature in our faith and trust and love in you. Lord, bless this time we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
In Isaiah 45, the prophet Isaiah makes this incredible statement. Truly, thou art a God who hides himself. Think about those words. Thou art a God who hides thyself. It is true, now we see in a mirror dimly. As such, we live in a world of such wretchedness and sin where the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. We live in a world where the word of God is, is being persecuted and attacked by nations. We live in a world where we labor and serve God and from our perspective see no fruit, none whatsoever. Yet that was the very context in which God's people were living when Zephaniah was written. These men, these women, were struggling in difficult times where wickedness seems to have, have uh, flourished and, and won the day. And yet God, through these um, eight visions, calls upon his people to look and see the world as God sees it. To understand that what they see and what they're experiencing is not what is going on in this world. It's not reality. It's but a short blip of their life, but it's not what constitute what's, got, what's, what's really going on. I've got a quote in, in front of you. Ian DeGuid wrote this of the entire eight visions. Introducing this section, he said, the, Things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. In L. Frank Baum's novel, The Wizard of Oz, the wizard manifests himself in terrifying splendor before Dorothy and her three friends in the city of Oz. To behold him is a fear-inducing sight, for he appears in the shape of an enormous head that speaks and breathes smoke. Yet at the end of the story, Dorothy's dog Toto knocks over a screen and unveils a rather less fearsome re reality. The wizard turns out to be a second-rate fairground illusionist who has been hiding his own weakness behind a traumatic persona. The superficial show conceals a deeper emptiness. What we see in the visions of Zechariah 1 through 6 is a similar removal of the screen. Once again, the ultimate realities are revealed not to be what appears on the surface. In this case, it is the surface that is peaceful and calm, even banal. The apparent triumph of the forces of evil over the people of God. In Zechariah's day, history appeared to be following a smooth course towards the triumph of the wicked. The visions of Zechariah unveil a deeper reality, however, a reality far more fearsome than even the pretense of the Wizard of Oz. God Almighty is neither dead nor sleeping, nor is he a second-rate illusionist. On the contrary, he sees all, controls all, and is in the process of bringing about all his perfect plans for his people. That's what the message of the eight visions is. What you see is not what's going on, brothers and sisters. What's going on is God's work. That's what's going on. But they couldn't see it because of their vantage point. And thus, these eight visions call his people, call us, to be a people who live by faith. Do you remember what faith is? The definition of biblical faith? Hebrews 11 says, faith Listen to the words, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. In other words, faith is the ability to see beyond the visible to the invisible. It's the ability to take hold of the promises of God for the future and trust them in the present, even though we don't see those promises being fulfilled in our lives. It's the ability to to see beyond what man is doing and to see what God is doing. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is the defining quality of the patriarchs, the men and women of the faith in Scripture. Hebrews 11 says that they all died without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Brothers and sisters, God's called us to be a people who don't live on this earth gazing upon what is seen. He's calling us to be a people who live vertically, who have eyes who see what God is doing as revealed in his word. Rather than being a people worried and bothered and burdened like, Mar- uh, like Martha, a people um, 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 uh, taken up with, 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 with fear and sadness as in the generation of Zephaniah's day or Zechariah's day. We're called to be a people who will live by faith because, as you know so well, Zechariah lived in a day of small things. We've seen throughout this study that Zechariah was living in a time of opposition, of great weakness, of famine, of few resources, of spiritual indifference, and much discouragement. God used Haggai and Zechariah to encourage God's people to build the temple. And remember, three months into the building of that temple at that great feast, the people of God came and they said, this is a little pathetic thing. What in the world have you been working on for three months? What you're doing is is folly and stupid in comparison to what they had. What they're seeing with this temple was nothing to them. And yet, through these visions, God calls them, Zechariah, and the people of God to open their eyes and to see their difficulties, their sorrows, their sadness, their struggles in light of God's transcendent glory and his sovereign plan. That's what these visions are calling God's people to to do. Now, of these visions, um, the eighth one, if there's anyone that would call us to a life of faith, Zechariah 6 is that vision, the eighth uh, vision. We're going to look at this uh, vision um, as it reveals to us the glory that is yet to come for God's people. And we're going to begin by looking at first, notice one through eight, the conquest of evil. And by this, I do not mean evil's conquest. I mean the, I mean the vanquishing of evil, the defeat of evil, the, con- the conquest over evil. Notice with me verses 1 through 6. Now I lifted up my eyes and again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and and the the mountains were, were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, the second chariot black horses, third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot a, a strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said uh, to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country. The white horses uh, are going forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south. All right, we've seen a couple things. One, 
uh, first and foremost, this vision that Zechariah has received here, all of these visions occurred in one night. One night of vision. One night of massive revelation to this prophet. Secondly, we, we've seen that these visions, these eight visions, are, 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 are given in a chiastic order, which means the first and the eighth correspond, and the second and the seventh, and the, the third and the... Uh, um, um, uh, uh, whatever, six, and then the fourth and the, the fifth. The center um, was the main, the emphasis, where we looked at the radical grace of God for his people. Yes, they're sinners, but God has forgiven them. Don't live in gloom and doom. Live with the victory that comes from knowing it is well with your soul be- before God. And then the fifth vision being um, the definition of what constitutes true kingdom success. Well, the first and eighth also correspond. And as chiasms go, it's the first, it's the outer and the inner which becomes the emphasis. Well, brothers and sisters, one and eight talk about the same topic. Patrols going out over the earth, just as the Persians were known for this. They had their network of spies who would then go out to the kingdom and come back and report. That's the first vision. These angels went out and saw what was going on in the world, how wicked was it, peace, prosperous, happy to be um, I'm attacking God's uh, people, and yet they uh, come back and report. Well, the eighth uh, vision contains um, same thing, horses, different colored, and they're uh, patrolling. But there's subtle differences, important differences. Notice, while the first vision was given in the context of gloom, where God's kingdom seemed to be in shambles, and the nations all, all at peace and rest in their sin, the vision before us, this eighth uh, vision, ends with God being at rest and the nations being in shambles. Note that. This vision ends with God being at rest and the world being in shambles. Secondly, the first vision began with four angels reporting in a dark valley hidden from the side of man. Remember that. Uh, uh, This last vision has four spirits representing God Almighty riding out in chariots of triumph to conquer the world's kingdoms. And thirdly, the first vision was given at night. It began at night. But this last vision, according to most commentators, was given at dawn. With the implication being very clear, God's people with this last vision have entered into the dawn of a new part of God's kingdom. A new new day in God's redemptive program for his people. It's incredible. This seventh, uh, I'm sorry, eighth uh, vision proclaims this, that we're at the dawn of a new day for God's people. And we're going to walk away and see this dawn. With that, let me point out to you a couple things from verses one through seven, or one through six. Notice verse one, behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were bronze mountains. Uh, According to most uh, commentaries, 1 Kings chapter 7 describes the building, the the, uh, creation of these two massive bronze mountains, bronze pillars, 50 feet high that were placed on either side of the temple door. And so we know Zechariah has been in the temple, not the literal temple, it's in shambles, but the temple of God, the real temple, which the earthly temple corresponds to. He's been in that temple in this vision, and now he's outside of it, and he sees four chariots, 
versus the, the first vision, just four angels. Four chariots representing the Spirit of God coming forth to conquer the world. Notice with me, four and five, we read that these are the four spirits, 5a. These are the four spirits of heaven. Unlike the first vision where we're dealing with angels, this vision we're dealing with four spirits which, which correspond to, well, first of all, the word spirit from last uh, a week we saw is the word ruah, which in the scriptures refers to, to the almighty power of God. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit in the Old uh, Testament. So um, we take this as a declaration that this isn't just angels going forth. This is God going forth. Four of them to the four corners of the earth. This is the omnipresence of God and the bringing of his judgment to this world. Notice with me six through seven. There's this black horse going forth to the north, and then we've got the dappled horses going through the south. Many commentators at this point want to uh, change the actual Hebrew text so that these four spirits are said to go to the four corners of the earth because the first vision has the four corners of, of the earth. Yet the text, that's a stretch uh, to do that. Um, we do know, verse 7, these four spirits go to the entire earth. They patrol the, the entire earth. But note, the focus in this vision is on these four spirits going out, and then all of a sudden the focus is on the black spirit, the spirit with the black horse, the, the black horses, going out with the chariot. Notice with me, seven through eight. When the strong ones, referring to all four of them, when these strong ones went out, they were eager to go patrol the earth. The horse's feet were, ch- were, were, were clawing at the ground. Their, their mouths were chomping at the bits. And God said, go, patrol the earth, which is exactly what the four, four angelic horsemen had been doing prior uh, in the first uh, vision. But now we read that this patrol is more active. Notice, so they patrolled uh, the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, See those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath. Their patrol resulted in God being at peace with the world, which means, with this north uh, country, which means God's wrath has been executed. Sin has been, has been paid for, has been executed against. And now God, now, unlike the, the first vision where, where the wickedness was at peace, now this vision leaves with God having now at rest. Have they appeased his wrath in the land of the north? Now, the significance of this is the last vision, vision number seven. What did we see what happened in vision seven? Well, God's people were brought, because of wickedness, into Babylon. And there they were, they remained as servants under the dominion of wickedness for 70 years. And then God took his people out of Babylon, out of wickedness. But unfortunately, wickedness had not been taken out of God's people yet. So in the seventh vision, we see this vision where God takes wickedness out of his people, raises it up between heaven and earth, a picture of of the cross of Jesus Christ, because that's where Jesus Christ was crucified, between heaven and earth. And then he delivers it, places it back in Babylon. And what we saw last time was that Babylon, think about this, when these visions were, were given, there was no Babylon. Babylon had fallen in 539. This is 520. So Babylon no longer exists as a nation. What exists is the Medo-Persian Empire. 
but yet that God says, I'm throwing this into Babylon. And because of that, from this point forward in redemptive history, Babylon became used to refer to the world in which we, we live. That unholy trivium between the, the um, a political, economic, and religious, which in the end time would become this one massive empire through which Satan would uh, attack and um, uh, harangue and persecute God's uh, people. So God took this wickedness and he threw it into Babylon such that Babylon became synonymous with the fallen world. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Do not be conformed to the world. It's Babylon. And in Revelation 17 and beyond, we read about how Babylon the Great would be destroyed finally and, and uh, uh, cast into the lake of fire, etc., etc. All that was last time. Well, brothers and sisters, notice these horses go where? To the north. And we know the north country means that's where they got attacked from the east. That's Babylon. So God, in this vision, is telling his people, last a vision, I've forgiven your wickedness. I've removed your wickedness. Wickedness now is in the, the world in which we, we live. It's Babylon the Great. It's the, it's, the, it's, it's the present world. But notice in this vision, God gives his people a glimpse into the destruction of Babylon the Great. What we looked at last week. Here, this is the destruction. And so, brothers and sisters, before us, first and foremost, we have a vision of God destroying evil. The conquest of God over evil. Um, it's God's people who have been hurried. So get this, guys. Rejoice. God, you and I have been harangued by evil. We live in an evil age. Like Lot, I hope all of us are tormented by the things that are going on in the world in which we live. But this vision comes to his people saying, Christian, rejoice. God is sovereign over wickedness. And the day is coming, and is coming quickly, when wickedness will be destroyed. Think of the second vision that we looked at. And that second vision where the picture was, was, was vivid, that this noose has been placed around the neck of wicked people, and it right now is being tightened. If you and I saw the world through that eye, how it would change the way we see wicked people. We would pray for their salvation, not sit there with anger. And, oh, man, get those people. It would be God because, because judgment is soon. And that's this last vision. God's proclamation to his people living when, at a time when it seemed this wickedness had no end and it could do whatever it, it wanted. God said, Christian, open your eyes, lift your eyes up, stop looking horizontally, look vertically. I am in the process of destroying this world. You're at the dawn of a new age, as we'll see. And that new age involves the destruction of Babylon the Great. That then brings us then to how. Well, actually, notice the quote from Ian DeGuid again. Chariots were the ancient equivalent of tanks, the key symbol of military power. What is more, these chariots are pulled by no ordinary horses. All of them were strong, and there are four of them, the number of completeness. The symbolism is potent. The data gathering is complete and the signal has come, has been given from the divine high command. Let's roll. The heavenly army is on the move. The might of this world's empires is about to be overtaken by the omnipotent power of the Lord of hosts. Amen. Brother, that's, and sisters, that's this vision. 
eighth uh, vision. Now, how is God going to do this? Notice with me verse 9 through 10, the crowning of God's victor. The, Lord, the, the, the word of the Lord also came to me saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and go to this, on the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Brothers and sisters, you know, may not see this on the, on the surface, but this is the language of conquest. That little phrase, silver and gold, it's the language of, conf- of, of uh, conquest. The last time we thought of silver and gold being brought, notice you've got these four Jews who came from Babylon who just arrived in Palestine in 520, and they have all this money, silver and gold, and God tells them, go, go to those men, take their silver and gold and make a crown. Now the last time we read about something the same, a concept, it's Exodus 3.20, listen to it. So I will stretch out my hand, he told Moses at the very beginning, and I will strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, they will let, go, let you go. And I, will, and I will grant this people favor on this side of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbors and the, woman's, and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you, will not, and, and you will put them on your sons and daughter. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. God's people, when they left Egypt, they didn't leave in the, in the darkness of night, under the cover of darkness, secretly. They left in broad daylight as victors, having vanquished Egypt, having God having vanquished Egypt, and God's people enjoying the plunder. That's the picture here. These four people went, these four people, these four Jews, their families went into Babylon in rags. Everyone went there in chains. But 70 years later, 70, 80, 90 years later, four of these men come out, their families come out of Babylon, having vanquished Babylon, bringing its silver and its gold um, uh, to Babylon or, or to Palestine, for which God is going to take and make a crown to crown the Messiah. Now, Sinclair Ferguson's comment on this, I think, is rather salient. His comment is, it's not literal in gold. I mean, we see this in Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 60 or Revelation 21, that the nations will bring the wealth of the nations before God. The wealth of the nations that crowns Jesus Christ is not literal gold and silver. It's converts. It's people being saved by grace in Christ. It's people at the end time bowing their knee before God, proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gold. That's the silver of the nations with which Jesus Christ would be crowned. So how would God uh, uh, conquer this world? How would God destroy Babylon with its wickedness? Well, we saw it last week through the ministrations of a prophet or of of a priestly king. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ also likewise partook of the same, that through death, notice his kingly office, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Notice his priestly office. It might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus Christ's work on the cross did two incredible things. It destroyed, as a king, destroys kingdoms. It destroyed Babylon the Great. And it delivered, through the forgiveness of sin, um, those who are subject to slavery all their lives. 
Ephesians 4.8, Paul cried out from the Old Testament. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts unto men. That's the picture of the Exodus. That's the picture of Zechariah. That's what Jesus Christ did at the cross. So notice, how would God bring about the destruction of Babylon the Great? It would begin through the ministrations of this priest king. Notice with me then the, the consummation of this plan. It's 12 through 13. Then say to him, Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. It's the same phrase the pilot would say when he put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head and brought him out for the world to see. He said, behold the man. Here this uh, um, uh, priest, Joshua, who is a type of, of Christ, would be crowned and the same words would be spoken of him. Behold the man whose name is Branch, which is a messianic title, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 33. He will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, the temple of the Lord is being built right now at, the, at, the, at this vision. It would be finished in 516. Um, that's the, clearly, this is not talking about Joshua. This is talking about the Messiah, who himself would build the temple, which Paul identifies, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, as the church. So this is a glorious foretaste that at this time, God's telling his people, man, you think wickedness is just doing great. I am in the process of doing something that if you understood it, your ears would tickle and burn. They'd buzz. This is it. I am in the process of destroying Babylon the Great right now. As you and I are sitting here, he's destroying it. And he's going to do it through the ministration of this priest king, whose name would be Branch, a Messianic title. And what would he do? He would build the temple of God. Incredible. Notice with me verse, um, or uh, not verse, um, the quote from Boyce. Or actually, verse uh, uh, 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he, will bring, and, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Christ is the head of the church. He always has been, always will be. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Commentators are quick to say the two offices between king and priest. And in a limited sense, you could say he'd bring peace between the two offices. Because while in scripture, there was no conflict between the office of priest and the office of king. In practice, you look at redemptive history. At times, there was a conflict between the priestly office and the kingly office. So this king, is, or this priest, this king is going to bring harmony between the two. That's how a lot of people interpret this. Boyce doesn't. Boyce takes this completely different. And I think he's right on. I think in a limited way there is, that the other commentators are right. But ultimately, what's the peace between the kingly office and the priestly office? As Boyce wrote, what is the result of his atonement rule? The text describes it as harmony or peace. Harmony between whom? Not between the two offices. That relationship has been harmonious from the beginning in God's plan. Not between God the Father and, not, and, and his servant the Son. That too has existed from eternity. The peace is between the holy God and sinners. Between God and ourselves. So brothers and sisters, the consummation will be King Jesus. At the cross of Jesus Christ. Bringing peace between God. Um, his rule as his, his, his glorious majesty. His, he, his rule as king and God's people. 
and between God, his priestly rule, his priestly reign, and between his uh, people. Incredible. It's an incredible vision of what God is going to do in the Messiah in four, uh, 600, what are 500 short years. Incredible. Now that brings us then to the confirmation. Notice with me verse 14. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to, and we could translate that as four, for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. These four are the same as, as in verse 9, just different names. If, if you're interested in studying that, download my notes when they get up there. I got a footnote explaining it. But these are the four exact uh, people. That being said, would you notice the crown referenced here would not be worn by Joshua. It would be placed ultimately in the temple for those four men and thus all of God's people. Now I got a question for you. How would the crown be for us if it's hidden in the temple? You understand what this is saying? We're going to take that crown that was just fashioned that we ceremoniously placed upon Joshua. Now we're going to put it inside the temple where none of you are going to see unless you're the high priest. It's going to be there by itself, never to be seen by men for us. How is that encouragement to us? Brothers and sisters, listen up. This is incredible. Biblically speaking, the signs and seals of the covenant, the signs and seals that God gives us in Scripture are first and foremost, they, do, they are for us, yes. But first and foremost, ultimately, they're for God. Listen, Jeremiah or Genesis 9, thinking of the rainbow. It was first given as a sign to God. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the earth. The blood of the doorposts. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God put the blood there not for man, but for him. The breastplate that the priests wore, and Aaron should carry the names of the sons of Israel in a breastplate of judgment. He can't sin when he's going in to serve. Over his heart when he enters into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. That breastplate that the high priest wore was not for him. It was for God. You say, wait a second. If the signs and seals of the covenant of grace ultimately are for God, how is that a comfort to us? What, God needs a reminder? God does not need a reminder. Those are given to God as a reminder to God on our behalf. Let me explain it this way. When I was in sixth grade, we had the coolest teacher, probably the coolest teacher I ever had. His name was Mr. Arco, and he was cool. And what made him so cool is he thought like a sixth grader, I'm guessing, because he just, his whole room was just designed and organized with decorated to be for sixth graders. We loved him. He would go out and play with us on recess. He'd throw the ball. Okay, well, one Monday morning, he said, if class, if you do this during math, on Friday, if you do this, on Friday, we won't have math. We'll go out one hour early, and we'll have a two-hour recess, and we'll play baseball. Well, Monday came. Well, on that day, we did it. We performed as a, as a I think it was a spell. I don't know what it was, a math test. We got a grade. You know, the whole class got this certain grade. If you can get that grade, we're going to not have class on Friday. We're going to play baseball. So with the whole class got that. But we weren't, we weren't sure if he meant it. I mean, honestly, he, we're going to be the only one, the only class in the entire school on recess while everyone else is in class. So we began talking. We would ask him. He wouldn't say a word. We began talking. Tuesday came. Could it be? Won't that be great? Wednesday came. Could it be? Won't that be great? Thursday came. By that, by a Thursday evening or late school, none of us believed it was going to take place. 
There's no way he, he can do that. I think he was pulling our leg. Guess what happened on Friday morning? We show up and he's in baseball gear. Guess what, guys? He wasn't wearing baseball gear for us. He's wearing baseball gear so he can play baseball with, with us. But when we saw that gear, do you know what happened to us in our hearts? We're playing baseball. We get to play baseball today. That was as much for us. That was incredible for us. But ultimately, it was for him. Brothers and sisters, these signs and seals that God gives us ultimately are for him. Does he need the reminder? No, but by condescending grace, he uses this to let us know that while, while we might debate, will God forget his promises? <laughs> that crown is in the temple every waking moment, every sleeping moment. A glorious proclamation of the, of the unity between God as king and his people, God as priest and his people. Brothers and sisters, that's the, the confirmation. And thus, because he is our priest, we are never condemned. We are always friends of God. And because he is our king, everything that's going on in our lives right now, everything is according to the sovereign will of Almighty God. So your struggles, your weakness, the persecution, the torment of the wicked against God's people, the famine... That was, that was hurting God's people. All of this was according to the sovereign will of a good and kind king. Notice lastly the, conquest, the uh, consequent hope in, in calling 15. And those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. This time about you and me. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to, to, uh, to you. That's about Zechariah. And it will take place, last phrase, if you completely obey the Lord your God. Two things this tells us. Number one, on account of the peace that Christ has granted through his cross, we are called to co-labor with God in the building up of his temple, of his church. Family of God, don't miss it. Everything you do as a Christian is to build up the body of Christ, to build up the temple, to build his church. Think about that. Our evangelism ultimately is, is to bring true worshipers to God. It's not to save people from hell. It's to bring people, John 4, true worshipers to God, to build his church, to build his body. Our fellowship is to build the body of, of Christ. That's what we're after. And God says, you're at the dawn of this new age where the Messiah is coming. And with his coming, actually, it began back in Zephaniah's day when Babylon was renamed to refer to the fallen world in which we live. This new era occurred. God's people thought that wickedness had survived, was, was doing great. God came and told his people, you're at the dawn of a new age where what's going on in this world is not anything that you imagine. I am building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And thus we are called from afar to come and participate in this church building regardless of the situation around us. Lift your eyes and live by faith and interpret what you see in light of what you don't see. God is on the throne building his church. Secondly, I love this. On account of the will of the Lord, God has ordained to take the small, insignificant labors of his people and use them to bring about his eternal purpose, a purpose which here God says will not take place if you will not completely obey the Lord your, your God. The significance of this, uh, brothers, is, is simply this. I'm going to use the metaphor that, that Ferguson gave. He viewed these eight visions as, as eight panels in one tapestry. And you and I represent one stitch 
in that tapestry. And if you and I are not faithful in this seemingly insignificant, God's purpose will not take place. That's what he's saying here. If you will not obey me in the small things, in the insignificant, at the times when you think that no one's watching and no one cares, and what good will this be? We're living in a day of small things. I'm this simple, insignificant blip in terms of the context of redemptive history. What does it matter if I have devotions with my family? What does it matter if I miss, uh, you know, reading God's word of this day? What does it matter if I'm faithful and a man or a woman of integrity at work? What does it matter? This text says it all matters because God's kingdom is built by the insignificance the insignificant people and the insignificant lives and the insignificant labors all build this beautiful tapestry whereby God brings about his glory and dominion and power and might. That's this glorious trans, uh, um, um, victory. That's this glorious ending um, of this last vision of the eight visions given to his people. Brothers and sisters, we're back to where we began this morning. That is to live by faith. Will you live by faith? It's fun to hear this. It's a pep rally. We can look at these passages and say, wow, this just gets my heart beaten. But tomorrow morning, you've got to wake up without a job. Tomorrow morning, you've got to wake up in the same relationship that you came today in. Tomorrow, you've got to wake up and go to school. You've got to wake up and go to work. You've got to wake up and face your demons. What difference does this make with all of that? Family of God, this is calling us, all eight of these visions and this last one is calling us to live in light of the temporal, in light of the eternal. To see this world as God sees it. And when you and I do that, in the words of favor, workmen of God, oh, lose not heart, but learn what God is like. And in the darkest battlefield, thou shalt know where to strike. Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible. It's a call for us to live by faith, brothers and sisters. May God give us the grace so to do. Let's pray. Father God, we look at a passage like this, this whole section of Scripture. And Lord, I don't know about my brothers and sisters, but just this, this book has inspired me and given me eyes to see and ears to hear and, and the ability to, to behold things, oh God, that, that just uh, eight visions ago, Lord, I was, I was indeed one of the many struggling. Lord, I still am struggling, but God, I thank you that you've given us this glimpse behind the curtain to behold something more traumatic that could ever have been described by the Wizard of Oz. The glory of a thrice holy God who is on the throne, who upholds all things by the word of his mouth, by the word of his power, and who's reigning and ruling. God, I pray you give your people the grace to live in light of your character. And then we'll know where to strike in the battlefield, to see what you're doing, O oh God, and then to know, O oh Lord, that you are most active on the field when you're most unseen. God, give us the grace, the faith to believe this and to live in light of this. And so mount up with wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the table of the Lord.